0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at org. We have been asking in the past few days what difference it makes to know the love of God in crisis, in abundance, in restlessness, and in sin. We've examined where each of us stands in this pilgrimage of belief by looking at the lives of two men. In Saul, we saw that um, this refusal to believe in relying in a source outside of ourselves, a greater God who loves us, leads to a life that is marked with manipulation, And cowardice and bitterness and envy. Ultimately, Saul's life is one of fighting against God's spoken word to the defamation of his name. David is our picture of knowing Christ's love through all the seasons of life, from the times of victory to wilderness to moral collapse. And what we've had in the reading from first, or sorry, second Samuel 16 just now is what I would consider the defining moment of his life. It is a climactic moment that actually takes place in a valley. It is a literal rock bottom. And yet this rock bottom is also a mountaintop experience. As happens when suffering and faithfulness collide. What we have at the start of 2 Samuel is David's son Absalom coming toward the holy city, David's city. Many of David's top advisors have defected to him. They have crowned him king. He is coming to claim the city for his own. When he arrives, he will fulfill the word of of judgment that Nathan had spoken when he said, your wives will be given to your neighbor. He will lie with them in the sight of this son. It is Absalom who will take his father's wives and sleep with them on the very rooftop from which he had spied Bathsheba. And Absalom will do this from the council of Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather. Before this unfolds, what we've just read, is David overseeing the evacuation of the city of faithful followers with priests coming at the last. He does not want to have war in Jerusalem. And the priests have done the very obvious thing of bringing with them the Ark of the Covenant. Probably most of you know this was a chest. It was a piece of furniture that was found in the most holy place within the tabernacle. And in our time together, I have not yet shared with you the, the role of this Ark Throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. At the very opening of 1st Samuel, we have a scene in which Hannah is pouring her heart out right outside of the door of where this ark is kept. And it's in this same place a few years later where Samuel, her son, receives his call as a prophet. And then as the scene shifts, we have the people of Israel in a battle with the Philistines, and they decide they are going to use this ark as a magical object for victory. It doesn't work. They lose the battle. The Philistines capture the ark. They have the presence of God. It's devastating the Lord sends a pestilence against them, and the Philistines return the ark. As they return the ark in the town where it is received, there are a number of men who lose their lives because they treat the ark as an object of curiosity. Then as we come into 2 Samuel, we have David establishing Jerusalem as the holy city, now a, a not just a royal capital, but a religious capital, and as the ark is brought into Jerusalem, once again, someone loses his life. There is a priest who knows better than to have the ark carried on a cart, and because he mishandles this ark, he dies and so in all of these things we are reminded that this ark of the covenant is to be revered and feared as if it were god's bodily presence it is because the ark is associated with god's presence that the priest take the ark with them as they're leaving the city wouldn't they all want god's presence with them in the wilderness just as they had it when David was on the run from Saul? Wouldn't possession of the ark be a way for David to assert his rightful claim to the throne? What are the optics of leaving it behind so that Absalom has not just the palace, but also the tabernacle and all of the furnishings? To take the ark was common sense, it was politically expedient, it would be a comfort to the people. There were both practical and pastoral reasons for taking the ark with them. But David will not do this obvious thing. Let me read to you just one more time what he says to the priest on this matter. David says, "...carry the ark of God back into the city." If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David refuses to use the ark, for personal desires. He will not claim the presence of God to get what he wants. He surrenders the ark back to God. In surrendering the ark, what he's really doing is surrendering his throne. Either God will bring me back here to rule, or he won't. It's his call. Now let me tell you something about the geography of where David says this. He has just passed the Kidron Brook. So what you have in Jerusalem is this hill where eventually the temple would be built and it drops down into the Kidron Valley and then up from this valley you have the Mount of Olives and so David has, has crossed through the valley, over the brook, over those rocks, and he's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And what you have there is an olive grove that in Jesus's day would be known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that David says, I want the throne. I want to return here. But Lord, it's your call. And of course, it was here in this garden where Jesus prayed, let this cup of suffering pass, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus would not play the authority card. He would not make demands based on his sonship. He was surrendered trusting in the Father's goodness. It was trust in the Father's love that enabled Jesus to carry his cross. It was trust in the Father's love that enabled David to carry his cross. It is trust in God's love for us that enables us to carry our own crosses. We've reflected this weekend on our crosses, in our individual reflections, in our discussion groups. We've looked at the raw spots. It's different for every one of us. For some of us, it is a lost child or or an unbelieving spouse. It might be loneliness or invisibility. There might be some injustice that you carry. You're holding the broken pieces of what someone else has done. You might be in a state of paralysis with regard to career or calling. You are in a place of silence and waiting. Something for which we need always to be prepared and to be expecting is persecution for orthodox belief. It is increasingly penalizing to be faithful in our society. And at the Advent, you have a heritage of standing firm. And the bedrock for this standing firm is a long history of faithful gospel preaching and teaching that has rooted you in the love of God. It is knowing the love of God, that God does delight in us, that allows us to endure persecution without taking up human weapons. The way Jesus was prepared for the cross was the Father speaking over him at the transfiguration before witnesses, this is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased what is said of Christ is said of us. We were buried with him in baptism and raised with him to new life. So we carry our crosses with the truth that we too are God's beloved children. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to believe this, We have all heard things in the world spoken over us that would cause us to question our worth, but it's the word God has spoken over us that is above every other word. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. This honoring ultimately means resurrection. Whatever deaths you are experiencing day by day will be redeemed. They were redeemed for David. He would return to Jerusalem. He would sit on the throne. They were redeemed for Jesus. He would be raised up from the grave and sits now on the eternal throne of David. Both David and Jesus had a period of that in-between. And our reality in this age in which we live is that we live daily in the in-between. We're like royal children in the nursery being told who we are and we are that even now as we wait for our full inheritance. We don't have to make it happen We don't bring it to pass. We wait. And we wait quietly with the assurance of God's irrevocable promises and irreversible love for his children. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting,